Wow, great singing. Great, great time of singing. I'm encouraged, strengthened to be thinking of all those biblical truths about the Lord Jesus. Take your Bibles, please. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're looking tonight at verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. We've been studying verse by verse through this great book of the Bible. We've seen a clear explanation of justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in chapter 3 started out by talking about the Galatians' own experience. Remember how he reminded them, when you were born again, when you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you did it apart from the law. It was by faith only, and the Holy Spirit dwelt in your life, and there was transformation. There was radical change. And then he went on, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3, and talked about all the old, many Old Testament passages that he brought together about the law putting a curse on all humanity, providing only guilt, shame, condemnation, and death. That's all it could offer. There was not one shred of life or hope in the law. It was nothing but darkness and anger and wrath and judgment. God never intended the law to save. It was only intended to reveal, to reveal our absolute sinfulness and unworthiness before a holy God. And it would drive us to the Messiah, to Jesus, the only hope. And so Paul explained, out of all of those Old Testament passages, the man who does the law must follow every single one of them perfectly. He misses one, eternal death and doom and destruction. The only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. By grace through faith are you saved. And then Paul brought it to a very personal appeal. He reminded them of some days ago when Paul went to the Galatians for the very first time, diseased, maybe very poor eyesight, maybe seizures of some kind. And they received him like an angel of God or even Jesus coming himself. And he delivered the message and they received it. But something happened. The false teachers came in, criticized Paul. Paul, he's not an apostle. Don't follow him. Diseased, poor Paul, crooked, hoarse, stuttering Paul. Come on, you want the flashy pizzazz of us charismatic leaders of the Judaizers. Don't follow Paul, follow us. And their affection changed. And Paul even said, at one time you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. What happened? How come now you don't receive me in my message? But then he ended this morning with an Old Testament illustration, an Old Testament story of Abraham and his two sons. One born of Hagar, of the flesh, just a natural birth. Abraham and Hagar having a baby boy named Ishmael, the leader of all the Arab nations. But he was not the son of promise. Remember, there's a few things. He would persecute the true believers, Sarah's line through Isaac, because he did that at that um, great feast that Abraham held when Ishmael was 17 and little Isaac was three. That was a kind of a foretelling of what would happen for us as unbelievers and those that, that love religion by works, they persecute us who believe in grace through faith. But then we also saw that Sarah said, Abraham, get rid of Hagar and that slave boy, Ishmael. They have no part of the inheritance. And sure enough, God said, do it. Because those who do not trust Christ alone, they don't get the inheritance. They don't have eternal life. They don't get the blessing that we will have For all eternity. You understand that, right? All eternity. We are blessed beyond measure. And all of those who are of the children of Ishmael through Hagar, in the sense of 
the law and judgment working for their salvation are under death. There's no way they can live unless they trust Jesus and join his family. That's the only way. And so we, we saw that so clearly. And that's how Paul ended his whole explanation of justification by grace through faith. Tonight we begin chapter 5 on into chapter 6, and we're looking at practical things. And it, tonight is, is going to be practical, but even more so in the weeks to come. The next couple of weeks, the Bible is full. These next two chapters are full of practical application of what should it look like in our life. How should it, my life be transformed by the Holy Spirit? So let me give you a few things, and we'll have to do these quickly. One thing I did not explain this morning. Remember how Abraham and the two sons represented two covenants? One was the covenant of Mount Sinai, and the other one was a new covenant, but it was a, um, one for believers that would be in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So I want to explain to you the difference here, and I'm just going to step down here so I can be closer to you, because you, I think there are a few things in the Bible we absolutely need to know about this. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. I'll tell you why the law could not save. There was no hope. There was no life in the law. All it could do was judge, condemn, make us feel guilty, shame, and lead us to an eternal death. That's all it could do. It was powerless. We, we needed something, and I think this is going to really open your eyes to the Galatians 5 text about being in prison and being freed and liberated. I hope it does at least. It's crystal clear in my mind. Jeremiah 31, 31. Here's God's explanation of the new covenant. All right, hold on. Hang on with me. Abraham gave, God gave Abraham one unconditional covenant, right? One unconditional covenant. But the covenant involved three parts. God said, you have a piece of property on planet Earth, land called Israel. It's going to be called Israel. That was reiterated. It was given in Genesis 12, 2000 B.C., but it was reiterated in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. That's where God, re, he just amplified the land promise. There was a second promise God gave to Abraham. You will have descendants like the stars of the sky. And that promise was reiterated in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. But the spiritual blessings by which all nations shall be blessed, which you and I are included in, that covenant of spiritual blessings given to Abraham was reiterated in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And here, here's what God has promised he's going to do, and he, which he has done for me, and I hope he's done for you. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice, the new covenant is not with the church. The new covenant is with Israel. The old covenant was with Israel on Mount Sinai. The new covenant is with Israel. There's a big debate as to, is the church under covenant with God? We're not going to get into it. My view is, no, we're not. We are the bride of Christ, but we're not under covenant with God. The covenant, this new covenant, is established with Israel, and it will be ratified and taken care of all in the future. All, it's guaranteed to happen because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 32, this new covenant. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. What's that old covenant? Called the law, right? God gave them the law. It's the old covenant. It's the first covenant. And they broke it. They could not keep it. The demands were too high. What were the demands? Perfection. And they couldn't keep it. They broke it, though God was their husband. So the new covenant is different, way different than the law. He's going to explain. 
Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Hey, where was the law before in the first covenant? On tablets of stone. They were external. They were set up like this. They were external. And all they could do, you could read them. They weren't on the heart. There was no power in you to change and obey them. You couldn't. You couldn't. They were external. All they could do was hang over you and condemn. God says, now, in the future, I'm going to actually take the law and not write it on tablets of stone. I'm going to write it on your very own heart, inside your soul, inside your body. It's going to be internalized. And then he goes on and he says this. I will put my law in their minds, verse 33, and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A restored relationship. But now, I want to show you one more thing. Go to a parallel passage Ezekiel 36. This is all introductory before we even get to the text. Ezekiel 36. We need to understand that verse, Jeremiah 31, 31. There's a new covenant that God is establishing with Israel. It's different than the old covenant which they broke. This new one's going to be written on the heart. But listen, he's going to give them what they really need. They need the law in their heart, and they need a new power so they can obey. Because without power of the Holy Spirit, they can't fulfill the righteous standard of the law. They just can't do it. So here's the promise in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, because they've been dispersed since 70 AD, right? Jewish people in every country in the world scattered from their promised land. God is going to take them from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you back into your own land. It's the regathering of Israel back in the promised land. Then, here's what he promised. Notice all the I wills. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. From all your idols. That's justification. He's going to transform them. He's going to declare them righteous, take their sin upon Jesus, and they get his righteousness. Look at this, verse 26. I will give you a new heart. See, the law could not do that. God has to give us a new heart, as he will the Jewish people, and put a new spirit within you. That new spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's the power to live godly. That's the power that gives us freedom to live for Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we are under the law, under judgment, under wrath, and we cannot do good. We cannot please God. There is nothing in the flesh that pleases God. I need the law of God written on my heart, and I need a new spirit within me. I need a powerful spirit. I need the Holy Spirit in me. And without that, I'm in prison, shut up under, under the law. I will take the heart of stone, which means there's no affection for God. It's a heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to take their rejecting, unbelieving heart and replace it with a heart that beats for him. And they will love Jesus. They will love him. And the law will be on their heart and the Holy Spirit will dwell in them and they will do right. They will be free in Christ, liberated from, sla- from slavery to sin. Look at verse 27. I will put my spirit within you, there's the new power, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. See, it's not an external law that has no power to change the heart. It's an internal power, the Holy Spirit, that finally gives them the freedom to do right and serve God and please him. So that's what we're looking at, okay? Now, take your Bibles, go back to Ephes- uh, Galatians. 5. Back to Galatians 5. Here's the key word that's just added to our text by the Holy Spirit himself. Galatians chapter 5. 
up until now, you haven't seen it much. The key word for chapter 5, if you want to write it down, the key word is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. That is what's going to change our families and our, our lives, our work, our work ethic. It's going to change our minds. It's going to change everything. It's all about the Holy Spirit as he's the power in us. He's going to bring the Holy Spirit up in verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He brings it up in verse 16 of chapter 5. I say then, walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. And verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Do you see Spirit, Spirit, Spirit? Because without that, we are powerless and we cannot do right. We are still in bondage and enslaved to sin. So Paul, his whole application is this. Now that you have the Holy Spirit, what will you do with him? All right, so let's take a look at Galatians 5. I think we see now the old covenant had no power, had no ability to change the heart. It was external. It, all it could do is box me in, it caged me in. And check this out, verse 1 of chapter 5. Here's what the word of God says. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So two parts to it. Literally, the first part is, for freedom, Christ has made you free. That's the way it is in the Greek. The Greek starts out with, for freedom, Christ has made you free. The whole reason he came and became a curse for us was to get us out of the bondage of sin. Remember the prison? The prison of sin. He wanted us out of the prison of sin, and he wanted us liberated and free, not on our own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the law of God written on our heart, like, he, like Romans 8, 4 says, so we can finally please him and live a life that's according to godliness. So that's his goal for us. So what's the, the, what's the thought? For freedom, to get out of this prison of sin, Christ came and liberated us and set us free. So do not go back to bondage. So I have two illustrations for you. Picture this, a prison. We know why there's prisons, right? There's prisons because men and women have no internal restraint. They have no power to do good. They have lots of power to do evil, and they do evil. What do we need to do for those? We need to physically restrain them. We need to put them in a box and close all the doors, make sure there's no windows to escape, and leave them in there. Because if they're confined to a box, even with no power to do good, they're internal, there's no internal restraints, at least the external restraints keep them keep them confined, right? So they can't get out and do more harm. You take a person like that, somebody who's been in prison, you set them free without any change in their heart. There's been no transformation by their spirit, by the law of God written on their heart. What are they going to do? They're going to go out and they're going to have freedom because they're no longer in the prison. They're going to have freedom to do all sorts of criminal activity again. Freedom to do this, that, this, that, until they get caught again. And then what happens? They're restrained and put back in the box until they finally get out again, and then they can, they're free to go and do criminal activity and live out the passions and pursuits of their heart. But not for me. When I was locked in the prison of sin, I was enslaved to myself. I was enslaved to my sin, the pleasures of my flesh. I was enslaved to my upcoming impending death, which was a fear for me. I was under slavery to the world and to the devil. I was in constant bondage. But 21 years ago, when I placed my faith in Christ, he set me free. He didn't set me free, though, without an internal power and an internal restraint. What's my internal power? The Holy Spirit. And what's the restraint? It's the Word of God. I have the Word of God 
in me. I have the scriptures that I can internalize and study and meditate. I have the power of God to go with that. And I am set free from the prison of sin. Listen, not to go back to slavery. True? I have the ability and the power to live in such a way as to not go back to slavery. I can actually live according to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, a life that pleases him, that builds my marriage, it builds up the church, because he has given me all the resources through the word and the spirit. All right? Do I, do I have the freedom to be criminal? I do. The hard part about freedom is what you do with it. True? Which is easier? Is it easier to be confined in a box where you can't get out, even though you have no internal restraint? You just physically can't get out of, can't get out of your cell. You get three meals a day, health care, full health care. You get a TV, magazines, and books to read whenever you want. Pretty easy to do good and be okay in that setting. You set that person free, and, and freedom can destroy them. Isn't that true? For me... The hard part of every Christian is being given freedom because now we have to use the word of God and we have to use the power of the Holy Spirit to do right, to make right choices. So that's my first illustration. It's very, very hard to have freedom and not abuse it. I could fall back into legalism. Like, wouldn't it be easier if I were to say, you want to be godly? Read your Bible 10 minutes a day. That's all you need to do. You don't have to do more than that. 10 minutes a day, you'll be godly. Just pray. Say three prayers during the day. That's all you have to do. Witness to one person a month and you'll be godly. Easy to live under those constraints. Man, I, I can, but I'm, I might fail once in a while, but I'll, hey, listen, that's, it's easy to live under a list of do's and don'ts, but it's also wrong as we're going to see in the text. You know what's hard? Is to be driven by the Holy Spirit, yielded to him, submissive to him, reading the text of scripture and internalizing it and meditating on it so that tomorrow morning I wake up without any external restraints and inwardly, I choose to do right. I'm going to go to work on time. I'm going to give 110%. I'm going to witness when I have the opportunity. I'm going to saturate myself in the word of God as much as I can, not to earn his favor, but because he's the delight of my heart. Do you see the big, the big difference? So Paul says, for freedom, Christ has liberated us. He has set us free. Don't go back into slavery. Don't go back into bondage of a list of do's and don'ts to please God. Don't go into libertarianism, which is lawlessness, living any way you want. You just got to walk the fine balance. I told you I had two illustrations. One is the prison. The second one is Israel. When Israel was, was a slave in Egypt, pretty easy to live in Egypt, wasn't it? Work hard, get your meals. Work hard, get your meals. Work hard, get your meals. But as soon as they got out of Egypt, what did they have to do? They had to now make decisions. How are we going to live? Are we going to serve the Lord? How are we going to serve the Lord? Are we, going to go to the, are we going to go to the tabernacle and worship? Are we not going to offer a sacrifice? Are we going to offer our best animal? Are we going to offer the junk animal that's going to die anyways? Do you see all the choices they have to make in their freedom? Their freedom opened up huge choices. And what they had to do was, with the power of the Holy Spirit, offer their best sacrifice and please God, and much harder to live under that freedom. I think that's why most Christians don't handle freedom well. People prefer, it's easier to live in a box, it's easier for Israel to live in Egypt than in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, they had to make the right choice under the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's word. And they didn't want to do it. Much easier to live in Egypt than just giving your meals even though you're a slave. So be careful. Anybody in this room as a Christian could go back and slide into legalism thinking you must do something to gain favor from God. Don't do that. 
don't go there. Use your freedom, and we're going to study a lot about freedom and what it actually means next week. So that's the introduction. Now, there's going to, there's going to be four in the next text. There's going to be some results of a salvation by works. If you put yourself back under the law and back in the prison of the law, there's some definite results you better think about. And then there's going to be two positive results. Take a look at verse 2. There's three results if you choose to go back under the law. Verse 2. Indeed, Paul says, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. See, the Galatians were set free from the prison of sin, right? They have all this freedom. They just don't know what to do with it. They're tempted to go back and get circumcised. And listen, how long is the circumcision surgery? Maybe, what, 30 seconds, maybe a minute? It's a very, maybe a quick surgery? Very, very quick surgery? Maybe a few minutes? What's the big deal about a little surgery? Is it really going to impact my salvation? And Paul says, Absolutely. If you go back and you put yourself under any law for approval of God, if you think that some list of things is going to make you godly, here's the result. Christ benefits you in no way. He profits you no way. Think of it this way. You're outside of the prison. You're free. You put yourself under one law, one rule, and you have now entered the prison again and shut the door. And what does the prison represent? Only the guilt, the shame, the wrath, and the condemnation of God. If you want the grace and the blessing of God, you've got to get outside the prison. If you walk back into that prison, Christ benefits you nothing. It's as if his death and resurrection has no meaning for you. None at all. I'll tell you what, I think in more of an eschatological sense, when you get to heaven, Christ will be there on judgment day and offer no benefit. How could he? You put yourself under the law. And what's the, what's the result of being under the law? A curse. And what does a curse lead to? Death. You willingly put yourself back under the law. Paul says it's as if Christ is not even there to help you, to give you benefit at the end. There is no hope for you. You are now cursed again. Listen, it is so easy. I, I know people talk about legalism a lot. Legalism is not high standards. It's not godly behavior. You can't just call any godly behavior legalism because somebody does it. Legalism is doing something to gain God's acceptance or favor. It's like, if I do this, God, you'll love me more. If I witness to five people instead of one, you'll love me more. If I read my Bible longer, you'll love me more. That's the attitude of legalism. All right? You do that, there's no profit in it. Christ benefits you nothing. Come the future day, all of that will be burnt up. Your salvation is still intact. You're still secure in the Lord, but Christ benefits you nothing. Look at the second thing in verse 3. Paul says, and I testify again. He's He's going to witness again to this truth. To every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You put yourself under one law, you are obligated to put yourself under the entire law. You cannot pick and choose. Now, listen to me carefully. I have friends that at one time, as born-again believers, would be in a setting like this, who chose to join a messianic assembly, which keeps the kosher laws. And they have to keep the kosher laws now, meaning they have to have meat dishes and milk dishes, and they can't mix the two. 
They can't eat seafood or um, things with um, cloven hoofs or pork. They, they just cannot eat those things according to their rules. They place themselves under the kosher rules as a, as a rule of life, as a guide to life. You know what this text of scripture says? You put yourself under one rule. You have now put yourself back in prison. You've walked through the prison doors. You've shut the door. You are outside of God's grace and blessing. His, his grace, which is undeserved favor, is shining on the outside, but not in the prison. In the prison, you're under the law. You made one law. You put yourself under a kosher law. You are now under God's judgment, wrath, because there's no way you can keep it. And not only do you have to keep that law, you have to keep all the other laws God has established. So I talked, and I would love to have more conversations. You put yourself under any rule of law for life. You have to keep every single law. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I really like this law. I'll do this one, but I won't do this one, and I'll do this one because I can do this one, but I can't, you know, you, know, you don't have a choice. You put yourself under one law as a rule of life. You have now guaranteed, first of all, your failure, which results in condemnation and death, but you, you are forced to keep every law. Let's talk about church. How many churches say you've got to be confirmed to go to heaven? You've got to get baptized to go to heaven. You have to do good works to go to heaven. Any church that teaches that forces the entire congregation to keep every single law God has ever established. But not only that, the congregation has to keep it perfectly their entire life or they are cursed and going to hell and condemned to death. They are outside of God's grace and blessing. If you were in a church like that, what would you do? Run! Because the, Christ is no benefit, and you are forced to keep every single law. You have no choice. You can't pick and choose and say, baptism gets you into God's family, but that's all you have to do. No, you think baptism gets you into God's family? Then you've got to keep every kosher law. You've got to watch how you plant your, vehicle or your, your fruits and vegetables. You have to absolutely, do absolutely everything the Old Testament says you have to do. You're a debtor, Paul says, to keep the entire law. Look at the next one. Verse 4, here's another result. Not only is Christ no benefit to you, not only are you a debtor to keep the entire law, but if you put yourself under any works to gain God's favor, verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You have become alienated or separated from him. Why? Because he is outside the prison. The law has kept you now under, in, in the prison, and you are separated from him. You're not getting his benefit and his counsel and his strength and his power. Is the Holy Spirit going to give you power in your prison of works to do good things? Absolutely not. You're doing them all in the flesh. And how much good dwells in the flesh? Not one good thing dwells in the flesh. So if you put yourself under any rule to gain favor from God, Christ is no benefit to you. You are forced to keep the entire law perfectly all the time. But also, Jesus Christ has separated himself from you. And the Holy Spirit gives no power for you to do right and good. You are you're just confined to do it in your own flesh, which we know is failure. And the end of verse 4. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You are outside the sphere of grace. Listen, you know what Listen, everybody. Do you know what grace is? It is God's love for you that is undeserved and unearned. God loves you with you having done nothing right. His love is undeserved.
deserved for we don't deserve it we can't earn it it is a gracious gift that he that he provides for us and if we go back under the law we are saying your grace is not good enough for me i will work my way for your favor and grace and works have no compatibility what does it say in the book of romans if grace is without works it is grace but if you add one work to grace what does grace become Grace become works. Grace and works do not mix. The gospel and, and the law, they do not mix at all. You cannot, you cannot say Christ did 99% of the work on the cross, and I will do the 1% to gain his favor. You do that, you are alienated from Christ, and you are outside of grace. Why would you go back? Why would the Galatians follow the Judaizers and get circumcised and follow the Mosaic law in order to please God? in order to gain his acceptance and favor. In doing that, there are serious consequences. They're, put, they're walking right back into the prison that Jesus liberated them from. But I want you to look here as we close these final two positives. For, for you and I who walk out of the prison of sin and we have freedom and we're not confined to legalism, a list of do's and don'ts, and we're not lawless, there's some tremendous results. Verse 5, for we, we believers who have been justified by grace through faith, we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Do you see the benefit and the profit of Christ there? I am waiting for something that has not yet happened. Listen, back October 1st, 1993, I was, the penalty of sin was taken from me. No longer is one sin on my account. On October 1st, 1993, the power of sin was broken in my life. For the first time, I walked out of the prison of sin with the Holy Spirit in my heart, in my life, and I could do right, finally, and please God, and love others as I'm supposed to. So the power of sin was broken. I mean, I could walk back into the prison under its curse any time. I, I won't, though. But there's a third thing. I was guaranteed a bodily resurrection. That is the hope of my complete righteousness. We who are children of Isaac, who trust in Jesus alone, we are waiting for something that is a guarantee. I am guaranteed to be raised from the dead, to live forever with Christ in heaven. You don't get that under the curse of the law. You get death and punishment. We, we get hope, a hope of righteousness. And it is by faith, not by works, but by faith. And then, Look at verse 6. There's one more huge benefit. We have the benefit of a complete salvation, a, a hope of justification, sanctification, and ultimately a glorification. But in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. You want to get circumcised? Fine. Just don't add it to your salvation. You want to, you want to be able to get to be a better witness to the Jewish people, then circumcision is fine. Or if you stay uncircumcised, that's fine as well. Either way, it doesn't matter. But you add it to salvation or for some benefit of favor with God, you've now destroyed it all. So none of, none of that counts for anything. Here's what counts. Faith working through love. That is the result of being a child of Isaac in the new covenant with the Holy Spirit, 
in your heart. You are outside of the prison of sin. You are out from under the curse. You guys, we have a hope of righteousness that is awaiting us. We, listen, if we could even think of what our resurrection bodies are going to be, I have no clue. I mean, the power and the strength and the glory of my new body and what it's going to be like in heaven with all the redeemed and with all the angels and with Jesus, I mean, I can't even hardly comprehend that. But that's awaiting me. But there's something else. Right now, faith is working in my life through acts of love, good works of love are being produced by the Spirit in me. All right? So let me just go through this final point. You were all in prison at one point, locked up by the sin, locked up under the law, under the curse of death. The day you trusted in Jesus, you got out. You are set free. The law of God, no longer an external restraint, keeping you within the four walls so that even though inwardly you don't do good, the law is just telling you what you must do and then you fail, fail, fail. God gives you the Holy Spirit. He sets you free. His law is written on your heart. And then he says, use your freedom to serve one another. That's it. Use your freedom, not for yourself, not so you can run around and please yourself. You use your freedom to love others. Doing good, it says, faith working through love. There's got to be a whole outflowing of good deeds. Skip down to this verse, verse 13. For, chapter 5, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. We are called to freedom. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That means you get out of jail, you get out of the prison of sin, and you go right back to lawless living. You're, you're living criminally, although you've got the Holy Spirit in his word. Don't do it. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity to, to please your flesh. That's not why Christ set you free. But listen to this. But through love, what are we supposed to do? Serve one another. Serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled. You want to fulfill the law? You'll never do it with some external restraints that says, do this, do this, do this. But with the, with the Holy Spirit working in your heart, here is the fulfillment of the law. It's in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to fulfill the law of God with the power of the Holy Spirit, you love one another. All right? Agape, unconditional love. Here's what it means. 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Patient. That word patient, makotumeo, you know what it means to be patient? It means you get offended over and over and over and over again, and you never once retaliate. Somebody hurts you, you don't rise up and take it out on them. You don't, reven you don't get revenge. You don't talk about them. You don't have malice or slander. You, you take it. You never retaliate. Love is patient. It is enduring. You never, ever, 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 ever retaliate. Agape love, look at Christ. The one who knew no sin, his beard is plucked out. He's being blasphemed. The soldiers are hitting him with a rod. Um, he has a crown of thorns pressed deep in his, brows, in his brow. Did he, did he retaliate? Did he, with vengeance, cry out? No. He suffered, committing himself to his father who will judge everything in the final end. He committed himself to his faithful father. 
Love is patient. That's the kind of love that should be permeating our, our assembly. Love is kind. What does that mean? Love is patient. Love is kind. It means we are seeking to beat one another, not beat one another, but to beat one another to doing kind things. It means being proactively kind. We're going to be the first to get the door for somebody. We're going to be the first to make sure somebody else gets food in the line. We're going to be the first to let somebody else have the best place to sit. We're going to be the first to whatever it is. We want people to go first. We want others to go first. We're going to do kind things over and over and over and over for them, even if they don't know and even if they don't care. We're just kind, 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 kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, it goes on and on. You know, love is, is um, never rude. It's never boorish. Love keeps no record of wrong. Never keeps a book saying, well, on such and such a day, they did this to me, and on such and such a day, oh, look, and they did this, and they did that. How come I didn't get mad about that one? I forgot about it. They did that to me. And we, love keeps no record of wrong. It believes all, thing, all things. It hopes for the best. It believes the best until proven wrong. But even then, love forgives, love strengthens, love hopes. I mean, that's the kind of love that should be working out in a spirit-filled believer. It's not, a, it's not a, a lot, but if you do that, you will honor God and you will love your neighbor. You will, you will fulfill God's requirements. This is the freedom to which we've been set free. And so many people get out of the prison and they think, oh, I'm free. I'm going to use it for myself. My freedom is for me. You know, in America, that's what we think. We think freedom is nobody tells me what to do. I'm free. I can think any way. I can choose anything I want. I'm free. No, in, in Christianity, freedom is I am free now to serve and to love you. That's what it is. I am free to serve and to love. Now look at what was happening in the Galatian church. And we'll end with this verse. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour who? One another. Paul doesn't say if you bite and devour the false teachers. Good. I would think he'd say that. If you bite and devour those false teachers, praise the Lord. But he doesn't. He says, church, if you bite and devour each other, um, it's like mice in a cage with other mice eating them, eating each other. How many are going to be left if they're eating each other? One. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He'd be all by himself, right? Paul says, church, if you bite and devour, what does that tell you about the Galatians? Their freedom was being used for themselves or they were putting themselves back in bondage and the whole church was biting and devouring each other. Paul says, you do that. Beware. Uh, you will destroy yourself, and one will be left. And uh, it's bad. So real quick, again, for, for freedom, Christ set us free. But he didn't just leave us alone. He gave us a new power, so our hearts have changed. We were in the prison of sin. We've got the Holy Spirit, the law of God written on our heart. And now the question is, what will you do with your freedom? If you go back to the prison, Christ benefits you nothing. You become a debtor to keep every law perfectly all the time. You are estranged from Christ, and you have fallen from the sphere of grace. You're out from his undeserved love and favor, and you are now seeking to win his approval, which can only win his curse. And then we do, though, have a hope of righteousness awaiting us, and we live and wait for that. In the meantime... We have faith that's working itself out in love. So I'm going to challenge you. Go out of your way to love one another this week. And in the process, the world will see it, and the world will say, wow, now that is what I want. That's what I want in my life. So that's the call of the church.
So let's use our liberty to serve one another out of love. Father, thank you so much for this text. As we have just begun now, um, lots of applications about what justification through faith looks like, what our freedom and liberty looks like. We know that we are not free to live for ourselves. We are, we are not free to live unrighteously or lawlessly. We are to fulfill your law, the law of Christ, which written on our hearts, empowered by the Spirit, is to love others. And so help us, Father, this week to, to be patient and to be kind, to go out of our way, to do good to others, to care for others, whether it's physically preparing meals or sending notes of encouragement or texts of encouragement. Or, Father, maybe it would be just even lifting one another up in prayer, being thankful for one another. Father, thank you that um, we, we are to use our, our freedom and our liberty to honor you. So help us to be wise this week. We know it's so much easier to live under a list of rules, that we don't have to do any thinking. We don't have to use our heart. All we have to do is a list of, but we also know that condemns us, and it forces us to be a debtor to everything that you've, all of the law. We want to use the discernment and the wisdom that we have with the power of the Holy Spirit to make right choices, to do right. This week, we can please you. You can use us to reach the last. The whole church will be built up, and soon Christ will return. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thank you again for our church, Faith Baptist. I pray for every family, all the visitors, everybody that's coming. May you be glorified as we live out our faith in love. For Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. All right, great. Thank you, everybody. Remember this week's ministry.